Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Daniel Rice, a research analyst at the Mitchell Institute, filling in for Slick today. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So, if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Deterrence happens in the mind of our adversaries. But to deter, you need to have a pretty good idea of how your adversary thinks and how they plan for conflict. If we don't have a good idea of their mindset, then we risk not being able to deter their aggression. So that's going to be the discussion today. We are going to try to take a look into how the Chinese and Russians think of the world and what it means for how they plan for conflict. But it's not just enough to know what they're thinking. We also need to understand what this means for us when we think strategically on the Chinese or Russian threat. This is especially important in space where strategy is really just beginning to take shape. So joining us today is Christopher Stone, Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. Thanks very much. We also have Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, the director of the Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute in Washington, D.C. Great. Thanks for having me. And finally, Dr. Daniel Connolly, a Russia expert who teaches at Air University's Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. Great to be here. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. So, Chris, set us up here. Why does it matter that we understand the mindset of our competitors and adversaries? What's wrong with crafting our strategy at a national or service level based solely on a capabilities-based framework? That's a very good question. Um, From a space standpoint, uh, which is what we're going to talk more about later on, is an adversary, if it needs to be deterred, or if you're going to prepare a force posture to address them in conflict or crisis, you need to understand more about why the adversary is building the weapons they're building why they're developing all the doctrines and the war plans that they're developing so that you can craft your strategy in a way that not only counters it, but allows you to approach advantage from your own side's uh, interests. And what we see nowadays is since the early 90s, the United States has focused primarily on capabilities base. So they're looking at the widgets, they're looking at the missiles and guns um, as what, what could we have in storage just in case we need it again. Because for about 25 years, we really didn't have this great power competition situation going on. We had the end of the Soviet Union. We had the end of the Cold War. And rather than having a threat-based strategy for the Department of Defense and, and Space Forces in particular, we ended up believing, well, we don't really have a near-peer threat at the time. So let's look at the widgets and just start R&Ding what we might need if, we, if a threat comes up. And then, of course, we had the terrorism thing, which was low-intensity. And so a lot of the, the space perspective kind of fixated primarily on on uh, supporting the warfighter through services like SATCOM and GPS and stuff. While simultaneously, uh, the old U.S. Space Command put together a vision for 2020 that even though that organization went away in 02 after the September 11th reorganization, um, they were pretty right on about where the Chinese would be. Because at the time, in the early 90s, the Chinese were just starting their programs. And at the time, there was a lot of hope and interest in bringing them more into the international community, 
bringing them more into the economic spheres of influence of the U.S.-led international system, and we thought that that would reform them. And we'd come to realize that that's not the case. And so as a result, we had 20 years we could have been preparing based on what the U.S. Space Command, Intel people, actually did a pretty good job of, that they would have kinetic interceptors, they would have a full suite of options to give them escalation dominance in space. But rather than heeding that warning, we just viewed it as just somebody pushing an agenda when in reality it was very accurate. So in order for us to understand how to make a strategy that works, you have to understand the mind as best you can of your adversary or your strategic competitor. And that's why we're talking about this important topic today. Thanks for that rundown, Chris. All right, so let's begin with China. Dr. Mulvaney, as Chris described, we really need to get a better understanding of our adversaries in order to be able to create strategies that can best meet the threat. So what can you tell us about the Chinese worldview, and how does it differ from our Western or U.S. view, say with deterrence and war fighting, and why does knowing such things matter? So it's a great question, and uh, it's important to keep in mind a, a couple of things. One, they do absolutely have a different worldview. Uh, but we don't want to overplay that. Uh, so part of the the, uh, the thing we have to understand is that the Communist Party controls the entire educational system in China across the country, which is obviously very different than it is here in the West. And because of that, they get to craft that narrative and people grow up understanding what the Communist Party wants them to understand in the way that they want to, literally towing the party line. And so when they talk about their rightful place in the world, resuming their position in the center of the world stage, uh, they feel this is a birthright that's been taken from them. And it's really an aggrieved mentality that I don't want to say not, certainly not every single person in China uh, believes that, but the great minority of them do. And so that colors how they approach the world, uh, how they approach their neighbors, and how they certainly approach the United States. The other thing is they see Taiwan as an integral part of China. Uh, whether or not the Taiwanese people believe that or anybody else in the West believes it, it doesn't matter because that's how the PLA uh, and, the, and the Chinese Communist Party believe it. And so when they approach the world, that's the worldview that they're coming from. So although we would see uh, from the outset maybe a duplicitous nature uh, or them using methods that uh, would not be traditionally militarily focused here in the United States, you know, the PLA is a party army and it's absolutely used for political reasons and for political gains. And they just have different, uh, a different focus and a different mission set than we do. And so when we approach these problems, we have to understand uh, the mindset that they're, they're coming from and we don't necessarily want to change ours, but we have to understand theirs in order to counter it uh, and to predict how they're going to react in certain situations, which would be very different from how, say, the Russians would react uh, or anyone else for that matter. Okay. So given that understanding, what do you think the Chinese strategy is going to be in the future based on their different worldview, let's say with Taiwan and the South China Sea? Yeah, so that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> if I had an answer to that, I'd be uh, moving to Wall Street and putting some big bets down. Uh, certainly, they uh, they take a, uh, a long-term view of it, but, but that's partly because it's just the nature of their political system, right? It allows for leaders to have uh, 5, 10, and perhaps in this case 15 years in power uh, with a compliant bureaucratic structure uh, with no real political opposition, no free media, and, and an economy that has continued to support them. So they're allowed to do some of these longer-term plans. And so when we look at their goal for Taiwan, or certainly the South China Sea, because that's typically seen as less threatening, even to the the other claimants in the region, no one's really prepared at this point to go to war uh, over some of these man-made features down there, uh, however meddlesome they might be, but really even over Taiwan. Um, you know, they have a, uh, they have a long-term goal. They have a plan to get there. They've done a very fairly frank assessment of how, uh, how they are lacking at this point and how they would match up to, uh, the United States and our partners and allies in the region. Uh, and as long as they are able to set the timetable and set the conditions, they will work through the whole of society because the party decides and the state implements it, 
So they will work across a whole of society using civilian, uh, quote-unquote, private uh, enterprises, state-owned enterprises, the banking sector, et cetera, to accomplish some of these goals in ways that, again, we haven't uh, certainly haven't faced since uh, the end of the Cold War, and, and even then it was, it was a different challenge. Uh, so it's really a mindset and an ability for them to do that kind of long-term planning uh, over, you know, a series of years where, you know, we in Washington, uh, we're on a continuing resolution. We just passed the, the omnibus, which is not the greatest thing to do. And, of course, we got congressional elections at the end of this year, and, and those things change time to time. So that makes our planning and executing thereof far more complicated than it is for the, for the Chinese. Again, they got a long way to go, but as long as they are able to set that timetable, they get to decide when they're ready to go. If I could add in one more thing here, as a, as a space guy, one thing that he mentioned is, is their holistic approach to strategy and operations. And one of the things that I've noticed in both operational experience and research is that they have a different view of what deterrence is than we do, for example. And the Chinese word, which Dr. Mulvaney can pronounce probably better than mine, is, is not just a, a passive response to attack. It's a more forward-leaning, more proactive, more coercive combination of, of a term. And so when you look at their doctrine or you look at, at their, their behavior in space, for example, um, they view space as a low-threshold kind of engagement area. They, they view it as very critical and important. Um, I know that the, the Chinese leader has been pushing for more integration of space into the PLA. But in addition to that, space is a pretty low threshold thing. They think it's as one of our soft ribs. They think it's something that's easy to target. And as a result of that, that's why you see a lot of investment into counter space capabilities and anti-satellite weapons. And while we may believe that, you know, our, our deterrent is, is resiliency or our deterrent is, is, you know, based on norms of responsible behavior, the, the Chinese view of deterrence, both from a diplomatic and a military standpoint, are different to the point where a lot of our pursuits over the years have not been that effective because of that lack of understanding of the difference um, of that. So, for example, they have more of an attack-to-deter kind of mindset where if they feel a threat is, is sufficient enough to warrant, then they are willing to, to strike out, whether it's through a, a, a reversible means of kinetic or, or a kinetic attack. They, they reserve the right to do that, and they would consider that self-defense or deterrence. So that's something we need to keep in mind when we're looking at uh, engagements, whether it's in the South China Sea or Taiwan, that it's not just in the South China Sea and Taiwan. It's through all domains, and uh, they're very, very astute at that. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Xi Jinping has absolutely put a lot of emphasis on what they call these New Age weapons, uh, and they see space and cyber as two sides of that same coin, which is why they set up the strategic support force, uh, because they absolutely believe that they believe uh, in aggressiveness and in offensiveness and doing it uh, not necessarily always in the open, but certainly doing it all the time. Uh, and so you're right, you know, Wei Shu is their, is their deterrence, uh, but it's a far more active thing. And as much as they like to talk about not weaponizing space or militarizing space, they absolutely are doing it. They understand um, both the, uh, the opportunities that it provides, so they're investing heavily, but they also know that, you know, hey, Taiwan is only 100 miles from China. Uh, and it's a long, long way from the United States, and we're going to be far more reliant on that, which is why uh, we have to continue to understand exactly what we were just talking about. You know, how are they planning to use it, and what are the impacts for us, because they're going to be lopsided impacts, and then how do we deter that? And so that's one one of the reasons Cassie's holding a conference on uh, deterrence here May 17th in NDU, a free plug for me, uh, with great power competition and deterrence. But looking at exactly how does it, how do the Chinese conceptualize this, right? Because deterrence happens in the mind of your enemy. Right. So you may do something that you think is deterring them or would deter you, but it may not have that same impact. And so it's absolutely critical to understand that great point. Yep. 
So what do you think we ought to do about this? How do we get our strategic thinkers more informed in the mindset of our adversaries and less into a mirror imaging or capabilities only assessment kind of situation? So I think we've done a pretty good job uh, over the last year, maybe two years of uh, at least talking about how we're going to start to refocus uh, education throughout the, the PME system, right? The professional military education system of the, of the military. Uh, you know, the chairman came out and directed all the, uh, the, the colleges and the, and the warfighting centers to go through, look at their PME, maybe not focus so much on the, uh, the Indian Wars or, or, or perhaps World War I and actually uh, incorporate great power competition, understanding China and Russia and the challenges of today and really try to refocus some of those educational efforts. So still in the nascent stages, there needs to be a greater stable of people that are able to, to discuss it and talk about it, but certainly uh, working, working toward that. Yeah, I agree. I, from my experience, um, being in PME as well as other educational institutions, the focus has tended to be on Western theory. And while that's important to understand where we've come from, it's important to understand the adversary's viewpoint, obviously, strategically speaking. So while some people may blow off Sun Tzu or the, the stratagems or some of these other documents that go back thousands of years... Um, I would say they're still helpful tools in the getting into the mindset because a lot of that is still being taught, even to business leaders in the Chinese mainland. They're not looking for status quo, equal benefit kind of things. They're looking for advantage. And it doesn't require much imagination when you, when you come at the problem from that situation. So whether you're talking norms of responsible behavior, discussions, treaties, um, whether you're talking other partnerships, mill-to-mill engagements, or planning for conflict, this kind of understanding has to undergird everything we do from, from planning to force design to palming, because if you understand why they're building what they're building, at least the best you can, obviously, it's never going to be perfect, but if, as long as you can understand that, that will help shape a better force to deal with the situation and to provide not only the military options that we need potentially, but the diplomatic options. And so I think while a lot of my professors kind of blew off Sun Tzu as, as tweets, you know, like basically just a bunch of tweet languages on strategy, I, I think that's a mistake. And I think we should take a lot of that, the Chinese writings more seriously, especially the ones that are coming out of such as the Academy of Military Science, which is typically more reliable than their NDU equivalent. Okay, Dr. Conley, let's turn to you. As we all have seen over the past several weeks, Russia has been pushing hard into Ukraine and threatening its neighbors with nuclear attacks. So what can you tell us about the Russian strategic culture and worldview and how that helps explain to us why Putin is doing what he's doing and where these perceptions are coming from? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think I would like to make a few remarks to set the context for a few basic recommendations about how to think about Russia. I want to borrow from my colleague, I thought the point on deterrence regarding China was excellent. And I think it helps us to understand a strategic imperative that I want to get out there at the outset, which is how important it is, you know, the point being made earlier that what we want the Chinese to do, how we want them to think about deterrence is different from how they are going to think about it. So to me, this suggests uh, a kind of maxim, if you will, for strategy, which is that it's important to separate what we want from what we know, and that our desires can sometimes interfere with our processing of the knowledge that we need. So now I'm going to also borrow from Chris uh, and his excellent commentary on reading, right, that lost art 
that uh, I think we need to practice uh, all the more these days. It's been said, not by me, but by others a lot smarter, that if you want to understand somebody, including an actor on the world stage, know their literature. Now, of course, this requires discernment, and that's a point that I'll come back to, especially, though, when it comes to trying to understand them a little bit better and not just believing in what we want them to do, how we want them to act. Uh, so when I teach, I often have my students read quite a bit of Russian literature, and then it's really fascinating to me to see their thoughts about trying to explain Russian behavior evolve when they then turn to current affairs with that kind of armament, if you will. And that's why I think that this is important work that needs to be done all the time, not just in the middle of a crisis, right? Ideally before the crisis. So I just want to tag team on that very important point that he just brought up about reading, right? And so, uh, you know, we are very fortunate to live in a modern age. So everybody at Cassie speaks and reads Chinese, but that certainly isn't true across the DOD, right? Uh, but because now we have all of these amazing technology tools, uh, Chinese, the Mandarin language, right, uh, is no longer uh, the first cipher, uh, and so Cassie, for its part, uh, and we've partnered with our friends over at Project Everest uh, and our big brother institution up at uh, the China Maritime Studies Institute at the uh, Naval War College to try to bring you this thing called In Their Own Words, where we translate Chinese source material and source documents so that you're not relying on people who speak and read Mandarin to tell you what it says. You can go back and actually read it for yourself and find all the nooks and crannies uh, that are, are are interesting to you. So it absolutely reading is one of those things. Uh, sadly, uh, perhaps a bit of a lost art in the in the day of uh, you know modern technology and all the whiz bang stuff where you can hold a hold somebody's attention for fifteen minutes uh, or just maybe a, a tweet. But certainly, um, that's one of the very important points. And I think, uh, at least for the Air Force, we've done a little bit better job of trying to get that back into the PME and starting to look at these. I would absolutely echo the part you have to understand what you're reading though. So when something comes out of the Academy of Military Science, yes, it is authoritative, uh, or far more so. When, when it comes out of maybe a newspaper, uh, it does have a propaganda slant, but it also is there for a reason. And keep in mind that those are also targeted toward their own people. Uh, and finally, when you read something like, uh, and I hate to say it even on the air, but Unrestricted Warfare, you got to understand this is not doctrine. This is a couple guys that wrote this book. Uh, Cassie's got a piece explaining what it is and what it is not. But you have to understand uh, all your source documents. But absolutely a key to, to read and understand what what the uh, the person you're studying is thinking. Yeah, that's a really great point, Dr. Mulvaney. And if I could add one more thing on here. When I was in China studying strategic studies in Chinese, one of the things that really stood out to me that was in addition to reading all of these ancient classics on Chinese military strategy, we were also reading a lot of Western thinkers. So people like Clausewitz, Jomini, and Mahan, and, and others as well. So I think the takeaway is that while we might not be paying a lot of attention to the Chinese strategic thinkers, they're certainly paying attention to classic Western strategy. But back to Russia. So, Dr. Conley, what is your view on how the U.S. can develop better strategy and thinking when it comes to Russia? In terms of being able to produce a better strategy, I think it's important for us to consider that you should avoid looking for the same perfection in international relations regarding any other actors compared to the kind of perfection we strive to attain in our domestic politics. In other words, in domestic politics, as messy as they always appear to be, there's this sense of community, there's this sense of an order to domestic politics that we rely on, and it's at the foundation of our system here in the U.S. in terms of our politics. 
and that the temptation would be to look to impose or find that same order everywhere in the world. And so I think there's a call for temperance um, that I think is an important mindset to adopt. An option for a strategic approach that would avoid perhaps unnecessary escalation. I think it's a difficult question, but I'm gonna throw it out there anyway, which is that uh, we have to make a decision. Where do we want Russia to show its magnanimity? Where do we want Russia to show its sort of greatness, if you will, or its greatness of soul? And that's a difficult question because of the emotional content of what happened years ago, what's happening again, uh, all the sort of storminess of our relationship with Russia since the fall of the Soviet regime. And I think that um, if we are careful and think through this one and kind of take our emotions out of it for uh, to the degree that we need to, um, we're going to avoid a potential trap. And the trap as I see it, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a seductive one, is that there's a tendency sometimes with Russia, kind of a Janus-faced uh, uh, problem, that we fear Russia as a great power, but think about it as a small power. You see that? And that bifurcation, especially when it's not uh, very conscious to us that that's what we might be doing, it becomes seductive, and I think it can produce some uh, rather poor strategy if we persist if that mindset actually exists. Okay, so I know this is a tough question, but if you had to boil the Russian perspective down to three main points, what would they be? And how would you score the US approach to Russia so far? Three qualities that I would argue come from Russian historical experience, from its spiritual experience, uh, and help us to understand uh, why it's so resistant to previous measures um, that we have uh, sought to impose uh, in, and to work with Russia on, uh, each of them bears more study. I would claim that Russia and its leaders enjoy a large presence on the world stage. I would argue that they seek, as does the Russian culture, to bring order to others, to bring order and not have order imposed on them. And then finally, I would claim that uh, Russians historically have tended to distrust structures they do not own. Now, if that last one is accurate, it relates to their understanding of freedom. And if it's possible to say and make this claim as a broad brush, I know that for Russians, freedom is freedom from structures, from structures. In the West, we have a predicament then because often in the West, we build structures to gain freedom. So that, uh, if you will, political philosophy, if it's that starkly different, then that is a good caveat for us to keep in mind about a Russia strategy. So regarding this question, I think there's a call here to truly try to exercise some temperance against what a friend of mine recently called an empire of the mind. And I think this also, to me anyway, it evokes a passage from Machiavelli's The Prince regarding the danger of imaginary cities that could never be as a basis for policy. In other words, we have to deal with the Russia we have and not the Russia we want. So the danger here, again, is to, and, and Chris and Dr. Mulvaney did a great job of pointing out, I think, this danger by implication often as well, 
we have to be aware that there can be a set of abstractions that we might build and base our policy, our strategy on a set of abstractions rather than what is truly the case. So for example, if we believe in a construct that we've made up in which Russia can sort of utterly shed its past, take on a, a very alien mindset, and then not grow as Russia, I think this is an ideological belief. I think it's tempting, but I don't think it's good ground. I think it's probably shaky ground for strategy. So we've covered a lot of ground on understanding the mindset of our adversaries, but all of this needs to translate into action for the U.S. So, Chris, I want to focus on space. You've written quite a bit on both China and Russia in space. So how does China and Russia's overall thinking inform the way in which they approach this domain? Well, that's that's another very good question. The, the thing that we tend to ignore, as I mentioned in the opening comments, was that we focus too much on the things and not on why they're building the things or why they're using the things. And for example, based on some of our discussion we've had, the, the Chinese have a very unique view of deterrence and they have a very unique view of space and their role in it. So whereas customary international norms per the Western system use space as you know, either a global commons or at the very least uh, an open space that's capable for everybody to operate and leverage, freedom of overflight. So anything that you fly overhead is, is okay. There's no risk of being shot down, which hasn't always been the case, but that's the way it's been for over 60 years. The Chinese, on the other hand, are starting to review whether or not that's legit because they view the atmosphere and space in a more holistic perspective and that you see a lot of legal authors over there writing more about how they reserve the right to fire at anything that goes overhead. In addition to that, when you look at how their, their concept of territorial integrity and sovereignty control and things of that sort, that extends into space just as much as it does in airspace. And when you look at their strategy, they, they view ISR satellites, for example, something that we consider to be something for treaty uh, norms, enforcement, things of that sort, and just preventing all-around surprise attack. They view it as battlefield prep. And so you have to understand that while we view this as something that provides stability, they view it as something that provides instability. And then in other cases, um, you see a bunch of different viewpoints. So on deterrence, they're more active, they're more proactive, they're willing to shoot at things, despite all their comments to the contrary. They don't really worry too much about the debris generation issue because they have a long view and they believe in the, in the big sky view of space because uh, space has a very large spot, right? And there's plenty of orbits, plenty of altitudes to operate in. So that's why you see them developing a full suite of options that gives them escalation dominance vertically, which means you go from a reversible jammer all the way up to um, a kinetic interceptor or even potentially EMP. And they reserve the right to use any of those things in a matter of self-defense because every action they've done, regardless of if we have used it as aggression, like if they attack a ship that they believe is a threat, we think that as an act of aggression, they view it as an act of self-defense. Same thing applies to space. If something overflies them that they believe to be battlefield prep or something that puts them or their interests at risk, then they reserve the right to attack that in a form of self-defense or deterrence. Our deterrence viewpoint is more passive. We get attacked, then we respond. And so as a result of that, a lot of our policies have been shaped in a way that's more mirror imaging what we think they think based on what we would prefer versus what they really are believing. And so that's why you're seeing a very rapidly escalating deep magazine of kinetic weapons whereas a lot of people in the West are saying, oh, we need to ban these things. And so as a result, um, our posture is not really where it needs to be. On the Russian side, 
you're seeing some other questions come up with with what's going on in Ukraine. So you really haven't heard a whole lot about their counter space activities or their counter space capabilities until recently when Lieutenant General Thompson mentioned GPS jamming and other interference going on. And what that shows is a lot of people were thinking they would do more. They demonstrated a kinetic weapon just before they invaded. And now you're seeing just these reversible things such as SATCOM jamming and GPS jamming. Why are they holding back? Especially when their doctrine states a escalate to de-escalate mentality and, and also a appreciation of escalation dominance. So those are the kind of questions that you need to ask. And I'm afraid that too many people that don't ask these questions are coming away with the wrong conclusions, such as, oh, they really don't care too much about these kinetic weapons or other things. They're just, you know, like everybody else, they want to just minimize it and, and use it in the, as, as utilitarian as possible, which may not be the case. It may not be part of their strategy. It may not be part of their intention, but we need to be asking these questions. And those who do not understand or study the stuff that we've been talking about uh, will miss those, those key hints for strategy making. Yeah, I would uh, just absolutely echo that and say that in the DOD, we have some fantastic planners who do great uh, training and planning uh, uh, throughout people's careers. So they get really, really good at that. We have some really smart strategists that are working on these problems. What we need are historians, and we need to get historians into the DOD uh, and into each of the services to give us that context and that background so that when they go and they make these strategies and come up with these operational plans, that they're taking that into account. And that's one of those things that the military just doesn't really grow uh, innately, but we absolutely need to find a way to infuse them throughout the uh, throughout the force. Yeah, Chris, that's a great point. And Dr. Mulvaney, to your excellent point on that, uh, I think it is worth noting that, uh, at least according to my kids, history departments are being shut down across the country. So um, apparently in the field of education, we have work to do if we're going to build up that force. Yeah, those are really great points. Uh, so let's talk about capabilities for a minute. So from the Chinese side, Desert Storm was really a turning point in Chinese strategy. You know, the Chinese saw us roll over one of the world's largest armies in a matter of days using high-tech and network technologies. And the CCP's big takeaway was that they needed to be able to prevent the U.S. from doing the same thing to them. And they kind of thought about it in a two-tiered approach. First, they wanted to be able to blunt U.S. capabilities to prevent a repeat of Desert Storm over Beijing. And then they wanted to build their own systems to kind of mirror the U.S., so for our audience, you might have heard of the terms informationized and intelligentized, and this really speaks about the new way that China was looking to combat the U.S. It's a strategy that's based on network systems mixed with information warfare. And this feeds back into the history that we had discussed a little bit earlier. You know, one of Sun Tzu's key concepts was that the use of information and taking advantages over your enemy's weaknesses or fighting in ways where your opponent really can't fight back, was a good recipe for success. So good examples of this are the new Chinese hypersonics or their complex information operations that either exploit the idea of the freedom of speech in other countries or at a more tactical level, target some of the assets that we have on orbit that are part of our command and control infrastructure. And all of these things are meant to either deny our military capabilities or to fight in a way that is nearly impossible for us to counter. But this seems to be especially important in space. For the U.S., space is a critical domain, but it also seems like it's where we are most vulnerable. So Chris, in the space domain, how have we seen the Chinese mindset inform their approach in terms of the kinds of capabilities that they are fielding to try to win a fight in this domain? Right, absolutely. So... 
the Chinese have, as you mentioned, are about informatized warfare, and they believe, as they've been building up their conventional forces too, but initially their main priority has been on uh, the commanding heights of war, as they call space. And they view our space infrastructure um, that is largely undefended and vulnerable as our soft ribs, and they've been quoted as saying numerous times that they believe it's it's easy to strike and very difficult to defend. And so as a result, they believe that um, counter space weapons is kind of one of the key areas of investment in order to win high technology wars against a adversary like the United States. And so that's why we're seeing the development of mass quantities of, of kinetic interceptors that can range all major orbits. You're seeing uh, the ability to flex between reversible jammers and those that damage and destroy. Uh, directed energy investments to be able to laze and take out uh, temporarily or permanently uh, our ISR satellites and satellite communications capabilities. And, and you're seeing other more innovative approaches that we haven't really heard much about in the United States because of our strategic restraint approach, trying to be a good example and, and follow good mores and things of that sort, such as high-powered high microwaves and high-energy lasers and other things of that sort. So that's why you're seeing this a, a very strong, very aggressive, very proactive um, space force being developed in, the, in China um, that is capable of waging what they call uh, the inevitable war in space that would be rapid and destructive. So we're trying to keep space conflict as sort of a support function with resiliency and take a hit and continue in a limited fashion. They're not looking the same way. They, they have a very more aggressive approach because they believe that air, land, sea, and undersea warfare is critically linked to space as well as our economic power and influence and our diplomatic power and influence. And so because space power is such a strategic power player, um, that's the main target that they're investing in to, uh, to take out. So what can we do about this? Well, first, as we said throughout the program, it's important to understand what the adversary is, finds important and what they think about space and space warfighting so that your posture can be developed in accordance with that to counter their, their strategy uh, against us. So, for example, um, as you've seen in some of the latest reporting, open reporting from the intel community, if we were to lose, for example, GPS, which the Russians have threatened uh, I believe it was in GPS world, to target and destroy all 28-plus GPS satellites. If you lose all the GPS, you're not just seeing a hindrance upon weapon systems where a lot of our bombs and missiles are GPS-enabled, and a lot of our allies as well. And so you'll see some serious hindrance at the tactical level if that were gone. Not to mention the timing signals are also key to our economic infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, our agricultural infrastructure, pretty much anything and everything that we do from banking to transportation and everything in between is tied to GPS. It's a global utility. It started off just as a military asset and now it's a global utility. The Russians have been developing their own called GLONASS. The Chinese have their own beta that they're using as sort of a, um, a means of control in their Belt and Road Initiative through Space Silk Road and other things to make them use beta and not GPS. And uh, so that's just one example. Another thing that we should do is because of their, their push for escalation dominance and an active deterrent posture and a belief in a rapid and destructive space war fighting, we need to have a space force that is an armed force capable of waging such a conflict in response to an attack, regardless of what level of attack it is. So that means we also need to have kinetic interceptors. We also need to have a suite of options to escalate up and down to give the president the ability to say, 
hey, what have they done? And what can we do either in proportion or in a way that's superior to what they're doing to gain the advantage and sustain the advantage? Right now, we're not there. And I think a lot of it is because we're, we've been planning our space forces with a strategic restraint mindset, hoping that it would that others would follow suit. And in reality, people have used that as a vulnerability to exploit. And so we need to definitely take this more seriously, put more money into the space force so they can feel these forces and do so faster um, than we have been. Thanks for the insight, Chris. So gentlemen, that's all the time that we've got for today. But I want to say thank you again for joining us on the Aerospace Advantage, and we hope to see you again soon. Dan, Chris, that was excellent. And Dr. Mulvaney, it was fun working with you on this. I appreciate everybody's time and attention on this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks again for all the good work you're doing here at the uh, the Mitchell Institute and AFA. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much again for having me. Looking forward to uh, doing this again sometime. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to you, our listeners, for your continued support and for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave us a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.